It is a great delight to be back at New Hope. My name, if uh, we have not met, my name is Matthew Hoskinson, and am I on? We good? Okay. Um, I uh, had the privilege of serving here as uh, kind of a fill-in before Pastor Jonathan arrived, and uh, got to worship with you all for about nine months. And somebody said to me when I walked in, they said, "Oh, I didn't know, I didn't know you were speaking today." And I said, "Until about two hours ago, neither did I." Um, please do pray uh, for your pastor. He called me. He, he's actually preaching at the church that I was pastoring when I was here, which is kind of cool in God's kindness, how he's worked all that out. But after he preached this morning, he called me and he said, I don't think I can stand up any longer. Like, I think I'm coming with, down with a fever. And I had just gone through the flu and then walking pneumonia after that. And I was in bed for two weeks. So I'm like, dude, just get home, lie down, and don't touch anybody, okay? <laughs> so, um, so anyway, but the really wild thing is, I, I preached a few weeks ago for a church in Connecticut, and it was a last-minute deal. Uh, the pastor, kind of a similar situation, and I, I kind of threw this sermon together uh, on a psalm that I'd been thinking about for quite a while. And because I was like, next time I preach, I want to preach this psalm, and I thought I would have like a week or or five to prepare a sermon. It was like, oh, Sunday. All right, let's, let's get this thing done. So this past week, I actually went back to this sermon and revised it, thinking if I preach this psalm again, I want to tweak it because I didn't have a good chance to before I preached it the first time. And it was funny because I thought, I don't even know when I'm going to preach again, but I, I want to get this done and have it ready. So apparently God has something for us tonight uh, because he knew that I was going to be here. The psalm I'm talking about is Psalm 130. Psalm 130. It's going to be on the screen, uh, and I'll read it uh, in a moment. But this is a psalm that has been on my mind for the past few months. Uh, some of you know uh, my story over the last couple of years. Uh, I was actually here doing pulpit supply when uh, my sister passed away um, of cancer. This was two years ago now, almost. It's hard to believe. Um, and that was a very just dark season. 2017 was a very dark season. And God used New Hope, and I've told you this, but God used New Hope in a very, very special way in my life and my family's life, uh, for which I will forever be grateful. And whenever I get a phone call, hey, we need something, I'll be there. Um, God willing, and I'm not lying in bed with walking pneumonia. Um, but, um, but then on top of that, it, was, it became clear throughout 2017 and into 2018 that God was leading me away from the church that I was pastoring. And that was confusing, just to be honest. It's confusing. Uh, it's still confusing. I can't put a nice, neat bow on this story um, because I, I don't know where the bow is. I've been looking for it. Um, and so I finished my tenure at First Baptist on the Upper West Side back in May, thinking I'm going to take about a three-month sabbatical, and then, you know, the next thing will come hopefully by Labor Day. Labor Day came and went, autumn came and went, Christmas came and went, it is now February, and I'm still unemployed. It's been a very confusing season, uh, and this psalm has come to mind over and over and over again. There's a metaphor embedded in this passage that has inspired a lot of hope during a season of waiting. 
I want you to look for it, see if you can find this metaphor uh, while I read Psalm 130. A song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can, with reverence, serve you. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord. More than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He he himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. This is the word of the Lord. Now this psalm, as you can see, has eight verses, and it actually breaks down quite nicely into four parts. Four couplets, if you will, if you're thinking in terms of poetry. And you saw those four couplets on each one of the screens. First, you have, in verses 1 and 2, this desperate cry that comes from the depths. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. The word depths there signifies trouble or despair. And he is literally begging God. When he says, hear my cry for mercy, he uses the word that we don't use much very uh, anymore outside of church. It's the word supplication. You know what a supplicant is? A supplicant is the person shaking his coffee cup through your subway car asking for money. That's a supplicant. Now, he might genuinely be a supplicant or might be acting as a supplicant. We don't know. But some of the beggars you see really are beggars. They really have nothing. And all they have is what they're wearing or what they're carrying. A supplicant makes supplication. They're begging. That's, what, that's the word he's using here. When he says, my cry for mercy, he's saying, God, I am begging you because I have nothing. But first, you have this desperate cry from the depths. But why should God hear us? After all, he is big and we are small. There's, what, seven billion people in the world. We're just one of them. And on top of that, he's holy and we are not. How can we presume to ask for God's attention when we are not all that we should be? Well, that's where the second couplet comes in, verses 3 and 4. These two verses affirm God's merciful character. Lord, if you kept a record of sins, this means this is an accounting term. This is, this is, this is uh, what I was doing last night when I was figuring out all of my business expenses. And I've got a stack of receipts, and I'm entering them into the spreadsheet one by one. Like, I am keeping tally of every single thing that I can deduct, right? Because that's just smart. (laughs) That's what this word is. God, if you were to take my life and open up your version of Microsoft Excel and keep a tally of every single sin that we have committed, who could stand? But the psalmist is confident. God is a forgiving God who grants sinners access to his presence. So he's confident that God is merciful. Thus, in verses 5 and 6, the psalmist is resolved to wait. Did you hear how many times he uses the word? I wait. My whole being waits. In his word, I put my hope. 
I wait. What is he waiting for? He's waiting for God to act. When he says, in his word, I put my hope, the specific kind of word he's talking about is, your promise, God. You've made promises to me as your child, and I am waiting to see those promises come to pass. I set my hope in the fact that you will, because you're merciful, do the thing you said, but I haven't seen it yet, so I am waiting. Crying out to God from the depths, and his expectation is that God will step in and act on his behalf, and this is precisely where the psalmist embeds the metaphor that has been stuck in my mind for months now, more than watchman for the morning. He says it twice, and I've mentioned this in the past here before, that when you see something in the Bible repeated, it's not because the writer ran out of ideas. I'll say that again. He's not using a word processing program where he can put things in bold or italics. He repeats it for emphasis. But maybe even more than that, I wonder if he's actually trying to give us the, the, the feeling of being a watchman. You know what a watchman was in the ancient world, right? Cities had walls. At, at night, they'd close the gates so that everyone inside was safe from the enemies outside. And they would post watchmen on, the to- watchmen on the towers. And those watchmen were standing there ready to blow the horn in case the enemy came and attacked at night. Sounds like a fun job. Everyone else is asleep and you're not. On top of that, you are positioned up there by yourself. And here's your job. Look to the east. All clear. Look to the south. All clear. Look to the west. All clear. Look to the north. All clear. Look to the east. Right? I mean, that's, that's what he's doing. All night long, that's his job, is just to stay awake. How excited do you think he is when it appears that dawn is coming? Like, oh, the sky's not pitch black anymore. It's like really dark navy blue. We're almost there, right? And I wonder, even if repeating this line, he is helping us feel the repetitive, monotonous, seemingly unending job of the watchman. He's just waiting. And the psalmist says that he waits for the Lord more than that. No doubt, mornings have come and gone. Days have passed, but the psalmist is still down there in the depths. He's committed to waiting patiently for the Lord, and that's what he will do. Which brings us to the fourth couplet, verses 7 and 8, where the focus shifts from the psalmist in his own kind of personal devotion before God and turns outward where he actually speaks to the community around him. Israel, all of you put your trust in the Lord. He's exhorting his fellow Israelites to hope in God. And why should they join the psalmist in waiting for God? Because of what he's like. His love is not fickle, but steadfast. He's the one who made promises to Israel, and he's the one who will keep them. And because of his great love, with him is full redemption. There's no end to his capacity to pay our ransom. 
So there's no doubt that God will come to the nation's rescue. That's who he is. That's what he's like. So Israel, hope in the Lord. It's a beautiful psalm that offers much hope. And goodness, I could stop the sermon here, but you all know I'm not going to. But I could stop the sermon here, and I think most, if not every single one of us, whether you consider yourself a Christian or not, could walk away from this psalm with some things to think about in your own life. But there's something about the psalms that is, can I put it this way? It's decept- they can be deceptively personal. Now, we know that they're personal. It's the reason that when you gave up on your Bible reading program this year, you jumped right to the psalms because you're like, that I can understand. Like, I'm not wondering what offering are we waving and what are we heaving and what is all this about? I didn't know about the long lobe of the liver, but I don't cut things open like that anymore, right? So you go to the Psalms because it's like, well, I can find myself there. But I say it's deceptively personal because we can often just blow past what the Psalms were actually written for, like who wrote them and what were they written about. And we read ourselves into them so quickly, we actually miss some of the depths of it. In any case, it's dangerous for us to take other people's prayers and just pray them as our own without at least first considering what they meant to whoever wrote it. And if you do consider why this psalm was written, I think you'll find that it makes this psalm far more meaningful for us. Let me ask this question. Who is the speaker? Who is the I? Out of the depths, I. Right? Now, I read this a moment ago, and honestly, as I was reading it, I thought I equals Matthew Hoskinson. And likely when you read it, you put your own name. But who is the I? Who's the speaker here? Now, unlike other psalms, we're not told precisely who the author is. But we do see in the psalm there are some indicators, and I'm not going to get super technical here, but there are indicators that this psalm was written not in the time of David or Solomon. David probably isn't the author of this psalm. This psalm comes much later. Some of the words used actually are words that were more commonly used and even came about during the exile and after the exile. So hundreds of years after David. But whoever the writer is, he uses a word in the very first verse that calls to mind a key moment in Israel's history. It's that word in verse 1, depths. This, is, this word is found, the same exact word is found in Isaiah chapter 51, verse 10, where the prophet says, Was it not you, God, who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made a road in the depths of the sea, same word, so that the redeemed might cross over? What is, what is Isaiah referring to in that passage? What story is he referring to? You can talk to me. It's okay. I'm on the floor now. It's okay. Crossing the Red Sea, right? Which we call the, right, the Exodus, right? He's referring to the Exodus. And when you read it in this light, and you go to Psalm 130, out of the depths, as in the depths of the Red Sea, you see that Psalm 30 is at least in one sense calling back to mind Israel walking through the middle of the Red Sea on dry ground. Now, when we think of the story, we often think of, well, if you're of a certain age, 
is to say, if you're old enough to understand this reference, otherwise you're just a child. You think of, uh, you think of Charlton Heston, right? The, that epic movie from another millennium, Ten Commandments, right? And Moses, let my people go, you know, all this kind of stuff. But can you imagine what it was actually like and take Charlton Heston out for a minute? I don't know where they crossed the Red Sea. We're not given that specific location. But at its deepest, the Red Sea is seven, over 7,000 feet deep. 7,000 feet deep. I don't know. What, how tall is the tallest building? How tall is... Oh, World Trade is, is uh, 1776, right? 1,776. I can remember that. <laughs> probably why they did that. Maybe. Someone is probably thinking about that. Okay. Imagine that that's a wall of water. And that's on your left-hand side. And then there's a matching one on your right-hand side. Now, the difference between 1,776 feet and 7,000 feet probably is minimal because at some point you just go, actually, you know, you probably couldn't say in church what you would say in that moment, right? Right? And as cool as it is that you're walking on dry ground, the reality is this is some scary stuff you're going through. Because, can I put it this way? Like, we read Exodus 14, and we already saw the movie. We know they're going to get to the other side. Exodus 15, they're all going to dance and sing. They don't know that when they're down there. And it took a whole 24-hour period to get everyone through. So, I mean, you've got everything your own. You've got your whole family. Talk about a family vacation right? Like National Lampoons has nothing on this. Can you imagine traveling with your parents and you and your siblings and your kids and their kids through that? Like just the traveling part would have been enough to say out of the depths, right? <laughs> just going anywhere. And if you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about. Um, but in the midst of the Red Sea, you view it this way, who is the I? But Moses, Moses crying out to God, out of these depths, God. I mean, you told us to walk, and here we go. But Pharaoh's army is there. We're not going to the left because we'll drown. We're not going to the right or we'll drown. So we're just going. That's all we got. I am in the midst of an inextricable predicament. Now, I mentioned a moment ago, some of you may not be Christians, and, and honestly, you might be sitting there thinking, dude, you really believe that they walked through the Red Sea on dry ground? I mean, like, that's quite impossible. And, and if that is the, the, the question you have in your mind right now, uh, first of all, let me just say, I'm glad that you're here. I mean, seriously, I'm honored that you're here. Because if you're not a Christian, you had to have known that coming to a meeting of Christians, you're going to hear something that you just wildly disagreed with. And it's unlike people in our society today to go somewhere where you know you're going to hear something you disagree with. So thank you. And I appreciate that question as well. I'm not going to answer it right now, though. So if you could just hold that question, I'll come back to it in a few minutes. But for now, if you could just let me run with this, okay? And I think in the end it'll make sense why. So here's the nation walking through the Red Sea with Moses crying out to 
desperately from the depths of the Red Sea, affirming, God, I know what your character is like. I know that there's forgiveness with you. I know that you're not going to wash us under this flood because of our sin. And he's committed to waiting patiently for God's deliverance. And, and there he is in verses 7 and 8, calling out to his brothers and sisters, put your hope in the Lord, keep walking. Here we go. So in the case of Moses, the depths re- represent an unimaginable predicament, an inextricable situation, a place from which only God can deliver you. But friends, there's another indication that not just Moses is the one praying this prayer. There's another indication in the psalm of who's praying this prayer. And it comes actually in the part of the psalm that we normally skip when we're reading. The title. Psalm 130, Song of Ascents. There are 15 psalms labeled this way. Psalm 120 through Psalm 134. And these psalms were sung by Jewish pilgrims as they went up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was in the south, but it was on a mountain. So no matter where you were coming from, you were going up to Jerusalem. Even if you were going south, you are still going up. That's why it's a song of ascending, a song of going up. These psalms probably weren't written for the purpose of singing. It's probably later on that somebody wisely gathered these 15 and said these would be appropriate songs for us to sing as we gather three times a year for the different feasts that require every Jewish male, uh, his presence in Jerusalem. So we need to hear this psalm as sung by the Jewish pilgrim. As I said a moment ago, there are indications within the psalm, there are certain words that are used that tell us that this psalm was not written during David and Solomon's time, but after the kingdom was divided, after the north was conquered by Assyria, after the south was blown up by Nebuchadnezzar and Jerusalem was destroyed, after they all got taken to Babylon, and then Cyrus puts them back. It's like 500-something years before Jesus. And they come, and this is the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, where they rebuild the walls and rebuild the temple, all of those stories. And you remember, there's a story in there where it talks about how when they relayed the foundation of the temple, the young generation all shouted for joy because they were on the comeback. And the older generation all wept because the glory that existed with the old temple that they remembered was gone and was not coming back. That view, the depths of verse 1, point to the humiliating experience of the Babylonian captivity. Even though the people have now been rescued from that predicament, the glory days are long gone, and they're left as a tiny nation surrounded by enemies. God had rescued them from Babylon. God had rescued them from Egypt, and now they stood in need of God's continued protection. But there was one big difference between the exodus... Red Sea, and the exile. In the Exodus, God delivered the people from their enemy, but in the exile, God delivered his people to their enemy, right? God delivered the people from Egypt with Moses, but in the exile, God handed them over to Babylon. Why? Because of their sin. That helps us understand the question in verse 3. Lord, already our sins have taken our people and put us in exile. As much of an enemy as Egypt was, as much of an enemy as Babylon was, 
the psalmist recognized that they had an even greater enemy inside of them. Their own sin. Their own propensity to wander away from God. Which is why Psalm 130 is also known as one of the seven penitential songs. One of the songs of repentance, like Psalm 51 and Psalm 32. The exile exposed their guilt, and that helps us see a connection between two kinds of depths. We can start reading ourselves back in now, ourselves as the I. One kind of depth is like Moses. You're in an inextricable predicament, and you don't know how to get out. But another kind of depth is the weight of our own sin and guilt. And I say there's a connection between those two. But it's not the connection we normally think it is. We normally look at those two things on the right-hand side there and say, I'm in the mess I'm in because God is judging me for my sin. I, I'm, I'm in this, I'm having, this relationship is falling apart because I, made a, I, I sinned back there three years ago and, and now, now I'm bearing the consequence for that sin. That's, what, that's how we think the two work. And I'm here to tell you that that's a lie. God is not judging you for your sin. That's an awfully bold thing to say. How can I say that? I can say that because if you got God's judgment for that sin three years ago, you'd be in hell right now. And so would I. Which means as bad as the situation that you're in right now may be, and I'm not questioning that it is a terrible situation, it's not what you deserve. What you deserve is far worse. So for us actually to say, I'm in this mess because of my sin, actually makes us think our sin is like this big of a problem, where God could give us one bad problem, one bad situation, and that atones for it. Uh-uh. We don't think of our sin as nearly as big as we ought to, because if we did, we'd realize that, hey, cancer is not God's judgment for my sin. Compared to hell, cancer is mercy. But there is a connection between these two. And here's the connection that we need to see. The connection is not, I'm in this mess because God is judging me for my sin. The connection is this. God uses the mess we're in to expose the mess within. He's put you precisely in that inextricable situation to just expose what's there. That you really are angry. Like that is who you are. That you really are bitter. And you can cover over that. You can dress up nice on a Sunday, sing the songs, raise your hands, all that stuff. So how does God get our attention? He puts us in the depths. <coughs> because he knows that that anger or that bitterness or that, and it could be a, a, a wide variety, that lust, he knows that that stuff will actually kill us all of our relationships, and he loves us too much to let us go on deluding ourselves, thinking we're just fine. So he puts us in a mess, not to judge us, but to expose us. 
That's what God is doing in the thing that kept you up last night. He is exposing the far greater problem of your sin and guilt. We think our biggest need is for more money or for reconciled relationships or a clean bill of health or kids who will do what we tell them to do. God is using your pain to expose what you really worship. That, friends, is bad news. We like to think that we're good and upright, kind-hearted and compassionate, but God is intent on exposing the junk in our hearts and our circumstances are a choice instrument in his hands. And you know where that leaves us? Leaves us, verse 1, crying out for help. And it's amazing. God puts us in the depths, exposes stuff within us. We scramble around trying to solve it. And when we finally recognize we don't have the power to solve it, we finally end up in this psalm, in the depths, crying out, God, I'm a beggar and I've got nothing. My little coffee cup is empty. What good is it in the face of my own sin? How do we know that God will hear us? We know that God will hear us because, friends, there is one who prayed this psalm. One more. And he is the ultimate voice behind Psalm 130. The voice you should be hearing pray this prayer is not your own voice, not Moses' voice, and not some random Jewish pilgrim's voice. The ultimate voice behind Psalm 130 is Jesus. 130 is all about him. After all, during his earthly life, remember, Jesus made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem three times a year. And what did he sing on pilgrimage? This psalm. I literally mean Jesus' mouth moved and these words came out. He's the voice you need to hear. He prayed this psalm. Even though he prayed this psalm with everybody else, he prayed this psalm like nobody else. Because Jesus experienced depths unlike anything Moses or his fellow pilgrims or you and I have ever faced. I mean, what are the depths for Jesus but his whole earthly life in its entirety? Stepping out of heaven onto our world. From the heights of heaven to our earthly existence, his whole life was an experience of this psalm. And then it was a steady and progressive step downward until it reached the lowest point of all. When on the cross... He cried out to God, My God, why have you forsaken me? Called out to God from the pit of God's wrath. And you say, Well, but why should he, the perfect Son of God, undergo divine wrath? I mean, I thought God didn't keep a tally of sins. I thought God took his, his ledger and, and, and didn't even have one, he just threw it out. Friends, no, it's not that, that God keeps no record of wrongs, that would be unjust. It would be unjust for God not to keep a record of wrongs. Or else rapists can just go off. God doesn't keep a record of it. Your pain doesn't matter. No, friends, what, what has God done with our record of wrongs? Paul tells us in Colossians 2, that God forgave us all our sins, having canceled 
that record that stood against us. That long list that was there with every sin that you or I have ever or will ever do. God took it. And in condemning the Son of God, He took your record of sins and mine and He nailed it to that cross. There are no more charges standing against you because Christ took them. On the cross from the depths of lowest hell, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, the perfect reflection of God the Father, the only one who lived a perfect life, the only one who had the right uh, to stand before God instead, he gave up his standing so that we could be forgiven. You see, my friends, on the cross, the two meanings of the depths find their resolution in Jesus. He was the one who walked through the inextricable predicament so that he might bear the weight of our sin and shame. No matter how deep you go, friends, Jesus has gone further. He went all the way to the bottom. Then he died. God did not bring him out of the depths. God did not send a legion of angels to release him from the cross. He did not relieve the suffering of his only begotten son. Friends, Jesus died waiting. He died on that cross without hearing his father say, well done. He died without vindication. He died waiting for God's promises to become reality for him. He died waiting for the morning. Friends, this is hope for you who are crying out to God from the depths. You are following the path of your Savior. Don't believe the lie that being in the depths means that God has forgotten you. No, my friend, being in the depths means you're walking where Jesus walked. And like him, you, friends, like him, you got to grapple with this. Like him, you may die before morning comes. Cancer may take your life. Your relationships might never be the same. You might live in poverty the rest of your life. But friends, even if you die before morning dawns, even if your life ends before you see God's promise come to reality, make no mistake. Morning will dawn for you. That pitch blackness will turn bright. How do you know this, friends? Because as our gospel writer Matthew tells us, it was at dawn on that first Sunday that God answered Jesus' prayer. The angel told the women, I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. Morning has come. He is risen. Friends, Jesus has been vindicated, and this is the only miracle that matters, the resurrection of Jesus, that he literally rolled the stone away and walked out in his body three days after he was crucified. And for those of you friends who questioned what I said about the Red Sea and like, how does that even work scientifically, here's where I would come back to that and say this. Friends, the resurrection of Jesus is the only miracle that matters. If Jesus did not walk out of that grave, everything we're doing is a waste of our time. And it doesn't matter whether or not the people of Israel walked through the Red Sea. This is the one that matters. Friends, if Jesus did walk out of that grave, 
then he really is God, and he really can do anything. Friends, he has, and he will, and as Samwise Gamgee put it so memorably in the Lord of the Rings, because of the resurrection of Jesus, that means that everything sad will come untrue. Friends, this is the gospel. Jesus lived the life of waiting and faith and hope that we have failed to live, and he did it so that his life of waiting and faith and hope could be ours. And then Jesus died the death we should have died so that we might have standing before God and be forgiven of all of our sins. And then Jesus rose from the dead to give us new life and to usher in the recreation of all things. And now, friends, this risen Lord stands before you today and quotes out to you the verses of seven seven and eight. Oh, Israel, oh, new hope, put your hope in the Lord. He's been vindicated. He's been proven true. Look at my own life. I died and I rose again. You can trust him. Trust him in the darkness. Friends, this is the gospel. The gospel is not, if you believe this, then all of this will come true. The gospel is, this is true. You can believe it. It simply is. Can I put it for you this way? Jesus believed for you because he knew how much trouble you would have believing. There are times when it feels like we can't even believe, and in those moments, it is good and it is right to say, Jesus, would you just please believe for me? Even praying that prayer is an act of faith. It's an evidence that you do believe. My friends, morning will come. In the resurrection, it already has It's not unlike the fact that it dawns earlier in Portugal than it does here. Six hours? Six hours. It dawns earlier there. So they get to experience the sunrise first. We don't see it yet, but it's coming. The resurrection is the dawn in Portugal. One day, it's going to dawn here. I love the way the church father, Augustine, put it, and I'm going to close with this says, the Lord through whom our sins have been forgiven arose from the dead at the morning watch so that we may hope that what went before in the Lord will take place in us. He continues, our sins have been already forgiven, but we have not yet risen again. If we've not risen again, what has taken place for him has not yet taken place in us. But he arose on the third day and now speaks to us what you have seen in me Hope for in yourselves, because I have risen from the dead, you also shall rise again. Just waiting, friends, but no doubt, morning will come.